welcome to the Age of Enfrightenment podcast. The Van Gogh bus is coming. Let everybody's jump. <laughs> Nothing overtly racist about what just happened, but. Dave, there's nothing overtly racist about anything. But you got to read between the lines, I think, on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, it's good to be back in the saddle with all three of us. It's a very crowded saddle, but we're happy. If if you're up to date on our show, you know, if you follow the canon, you'll know that uh, (laughs) last week, or last episode, uh, one of our members was away. So welcome back, Dave. Hey guys. We we do regret to inform everyone though. We know that there was a big first time hit on the show and it was our guest host the soundboard. <laughs> Dave came back and we kind of pushed the numbers a little because Dave has tenure and he's got like really good benefits with the company. We mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. couldn't afford to keep the soundboard on the payroll. I know yeah. it's Theo's taken especially hard. But I, I think we're we're just trying to figure out how to rebuild as a team and rediscover the old us. Listen, you know, yeah. I, I the old good audio quality us. I I like <laughs> Dave. Fired. I respect Dave. Dave is in many ways I see him as sort of a friend, but the soundboard and I had a relationship and it's it's tough. I wish I wish him well in his future endeavors, but I don't I don't know. Sort Let's, of a friend. You <laughs> married my wife and I. <laughs> Ed acted as our minister. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I feel like that's the kind of thing that close co-workers would do. Whereas yeah. opposed to the soundboard who took Theo to Six Flags last week. So yeah. We had I mean, a great we, time at Six yeah. Flags. We asked our garbage man to be our officiant, and he actually couldn't do it. And then it worked out really well because we asked Ed, and Ed did a pretty like C plus job. So <laughs> I'm just picturing your garbage man not being able to do it because he's officiating another wedding. <laughs> like, oh god, I really wish I could make it. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I was really just really on a lot of pills during that ceremony, so I don't remember most of it. But I mean, I I tried. I if if you remember, um. I actually had a full, complete bowel movement during the ceremony. It was just, it was cool that all of my groomsmen and you guys also had a bowel movement so that I wouldn't feel self-conscious about myself. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you gotta, it's all for one, one for all, man. It was a really Sol- beautiful Solidarity. <laughs> Every- no one else seemed to like it. <laughs> <laughs> Every everyone on Dave's side of the room just released all at once. <laughs> there were tears, and it was it was it was very beautiful. But, okay, so yeah. somehow we've only wasted about three minutes on this, <laughs> which is surprising because like it feels lifetime. a lot well, longer. Buckle up for six more minutes because we're going to talk about my honeymoon. <laughs> we, now, Dave, where I did you go? I finally made it with a lady. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like to to take someone else's virginity? Um, it hurt, uh, hurt and it wasn't so much that as the long meticulous Bible reading afterwards that happened. It was just, um, I, you know, it was the first time I really read the Bible, but (laughs) as I read online, that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, it, it took about six and a half hours. Now, as the minister, I also officiated their wedding night and blessed their union. <laughs> he, st- he stood over us. 
Oh man. And gave a, I, I, you know, I was gonna say graceful speech, but it was actually quite disturbing, and we didn't want him there, and he was muttering and it's, sweating. It's not because I wanted to; it's part of the job, man. I took the job really seriously. And why were you not dressed as a priest during the ceremony, but you were dressed as a priest when, uh, like, on our wedding night? <laughs> How dare you question my methods? But I went to Ireland for the honeymoon yeah and you know and what you missed a golden opportunity to come on here and say oh, i just flew back from ireland and boy are my arms tired <laughs> no what he would have said i just flew back from ireland and boy are my saints preserve us my arms are tired <laughs> yeah but he didn't say shit i've been talking to this asshole for like an hour now and he ain't said shit <laughs> i guess i just missed the opportunity for that joke um I'll never be on a plane again, so I probably can't make it. <laughs> well, um, as as Dave mentioned, he was in Ireland uh, having just, just a miserable time with his new yeah. bride on their honeymoon. But we're going to talk about it, mostly because we want him to relive the pain, but also because Ireland is full of treacherous little monsters, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about the Fae, or fairies, as they've come to be known. The and, Fae. Um, and, and Ireland is really rich with this mythology. So, yeah, yeah, we're talking about, in, in a word, we're talking about fairies. So when people think about fairies, the image that comes to mind, you know, nine out of ten times is Tinkerbell from Peter Pan. You know, it's... They're small, probably female, little butterfly wings, and they're magical and fun and everything like that. And so, they are ready to fuck. Ready yeah. to <laughs> I've seen <fuck>. Hook. <laughs> I, know what, I know what fairies are about. Yeah, nothing gets me going like Julia Roberts. With a, with a 12-year-old boy's haircut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the actuality of it is that what we... The image we have of fairies is very Disney-fied, I guess. Yeah. So the actuality of fairies, like the mythology of fairies, goes back thousands, tens of thousands of years, definitely pre-Christian. And it's almost every single country has a version of the fairy myth. It's the the hidden people, the right. the people under the hill. There's these... This this culture that exists around you that you can't see, you know, in Ireland it's the fairies, in the Nordic countries it's the elves, the Hilden folk, um, American Indians had their own versions, the Pukwudgies, things like that, and we're gonna get into the nuts and bolts of some of the different cultures, how they view these things, how they're not exactly the friendly magical, you know, pixies that we think they are. Right. And you, you touched on something that I think is really important, that idea of the hidden folk, that at their core, no matter what they're called, they're just beyond our perception, whether it's literal and they live underground or they live in a realm that there are magical doorways that we can't access, they're hidden. So I know I did a lot of research on the Scandinavian groups, so ones that sort of came from Norse mythology. They're, they're not called fairies because it's a, it's a different... Um, it's just a different culture, but the fairy... Well, they'd be elves, right? They'd be... Exactly. They'd be elves. So in the Norse mythology, and really it's it's kind of crazy because it's so much part of the religion of that as opposed to just folklore. It's sort of been 
boiled down to that now as people don't tend to believe in the Norse gods anymore. But at the time when they really did, the elves were from Alfheim. Uh, the dwarves were from Svartalheim. And these were each of part of the, the nine realms. And both of those characters could be sort of thrown into this fairy realm lot. And often, as we'll see with other types of fairies, they're not good or bad. They're just very complicated. They can yeah. help you if you treat them right, if you give them favors, or they can be downright evil if you sort of hurt them in the slightest. You could literally hurt their feelings or you could step on their home wrong and, and it would cause a huge issue. So these characters keep showing up in these different cultures and in the Scandinavian and the Norwegian groups specifically it seems like they're they're just kind of like us in a lot of ways. They have similar cultures and they live in a, in a world that is just beyond our realm, but they can sort of see us, we can't see them. So it's very easy for them to get sort of annoyed with us and unleash their wrath, but we can't really do the same in the other way around, which seems to be for some reason a fear that a lot of Europeans had. Yeah, I... I read in a bunch of places that the fae were supposed to be casually cruel. Right. You know, they were mischievous in a sense that they would wreak havoc, that they would play tricks, but also they were cruel in a way that they didn't actually think about their consequences if they would abduct somebody into the fae realm, which, you know, time is supposed to move a little differently there. Right. Hundreds of years would go by, and they would not think at all about what they were doing or who they were affecting on the other side. They would just basically disappear people uh, for the slightest insult. Yeah, that idea of lost time is a big part of this, and not just in fairies, but across different cultures, too. This idea of sort of going on this weird trip that you can't quite fully remember and then when you come back to the human world, years have gone. People are saying, Where, you've been gone for seven years, and it feels like it's been a day to you, which, who knows, maybe psychologically that was a way to explain people going a little insane. It's just easier, I guess, to say they went to the fairy realm. In Celtic folklore, there was a hunting party that was apparently taken into the fey realm or the, their other world, uh, just to clarify a little bit. And they were told that once they went back, nearly 300 years will have gone by, and they cannot actually get off their horses until their hound jumps off their horse. The men who immediately jumped off their horses instantly aged 300 years and turned to dust. The hound apparently still has not gotten off of their horse and this actually became the mythology for the wild hunt huh. I thought that Which, sounded familiar yeah and I, I actually read a lot about that idea of turning to dust and i even saw a couple things that co connected that to fairy food that when you go into the fairy realm you really shouldn't take their treats which i guess is another cautionary tale to children like don't take don't take food yeah. from strange people well that's that's a sort of uh, an idea that's passed down through the ages because that was a thing in Greek mythology. If you're in the underworld, never eat the food in the underworld. And that, like, it, the idea for the fairies, at least, is if you eat it, it's going to be so delicious that you're never going to want to eat actual food again because it'll just, anything yeah. else will taste like ash in comparison. 
it's kind of like the poppy field in Wizard of Oz that sort of draws you to this like peaceful sleep that you never want to wake up from or the island you said Greek mythology Circe's island where she would give wine to Odysseus's men and they would turn into animals this idea of taking alluring gifts from strangers and being a a very dangerous thing connects very closely to the fairy world. Yeah. One thing that I saw in the, in the Scandinavian cultures that was really kind of crazy about that. And this is another sort of general being, but gets lumped in with this idea of what fairies were was, do you guys know about Huldra or the Huldra? Yeah. Yeah. That's um, the, it's supposed to be, it's like a beautiful lady with a cow tail. And if you look behind her, her back's hollowed out, right? Yeah, so she's basically, exactly, so she's like a, an alluring facade. So she's a seductive wood nymph who drowns or abducts men, which I got to say, that's something that came up across all cultures. Drowning was a big thing. So I don't know if Europeans, because they're just so surrounded by water all the time in Ireland and Norway, they really attribute a lot of drowning deaths to supernatural forces. And the Holdra would basically sort of call men out into the water and drown them and drain their life. And they would, they would said that if you could spot like their tail, you would know it was a Holdra. But they would always face forward at you because they had a tail and they were completely like a hollowed out figure from behind. Which I will add made me laugh because the idea that they had a hollow back reminded me of the first time my father heard Holla Back Girl by Gwen Stefani and asked all of us if what a hollow back girl was. <laughs> I wish I knew at the time to just tell him that was a Holdra. Oh, Hank. <laughs> See, I immediately thought of the scene, the bathtub scene in The Shining when I heard that. Yeah. This, like, beautiful woman uh, that Jack Nicholson goes to, and when he looks in the mirror, her back is, like, decayed through. Yeah. Yeah, and I, there, I feel like there probably was some inspiration there. I, I would think that, that King took some inspiration there when he, like, came up with that idea. Because it's a pretty... It's, a, it's one that shows up a lot, much like in Greece, the, the sirens, this idea of that seductress. That hollow back thing is very, I think, specific to them. But even in other Norse fairy-like creatures, this luring of someone, especially on water, is big. Like, there's one called the Nalkin, who is a man... But he and he plays the fiddle like beautifully and it's so alluring and he will he'll allure people out onto the ice and and then once they reach thin ice, they'll break through and drown. So clearly this is like something that just keeps carrying through. And interestingly enough, I know people have used in different pop culture things like in Game of Thrones right now, the term whites to either be something like a zombie or something like that. But in the Norse culture, that was sort of the best name they had for what would be a fairy. So it's kind of a catch-all term for little people, whereas elves were sort of full-size or even bigger than human beings. The closest, I feel like the closest approximation we have in pop culture to, like, the original myths of elves is probably Lord of the Rings. Like, I don't think they were quite as human as in Lord of the Rings, but, you know... One of the things we talked about last week in the Halloween episode is these different pagan beliefs becoming Christianized, and we brought up, like, Christmas. So, like, the idea of the Christmas elf is a very, like the fairies, disnified version of what they actually were. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of a consolidation of characters. Like, the the Norse had a, yeah, the Norse had a character called Tomte, who was three feet tall, had a white beard, and brought gifts to people in winter. 
which is like yeah. already an L for Santa. There's gnomes, there's dwarves, and that, like you said in the beginning of this podcast, the, that Disneyfied version kind of lumps them all together and makes them these sweet cherub-like little people, whereas there's a lot of different denominations in reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't we get into the, the Irish Fae a little bit, and we can talk about some of the things that branch off of that. Ireland used to be a very lush area. There were lots of trees, and it was pretty much forest from coast to coast. The fairies have always been linked very closely with trees and, like, the natural realm of the forest. And the idea being that as man populated more and more of Ireland and cut down more and more trees for agriculture, it began to upset the fairies, the fae. And that was when they started to kind of push back a little bit. Now, I'm going to quote for a second from a book called The Book of Celtic Symbols. The need to feed people led to more and more of the great forest being cut down until today there are only tiny patches of it left, mostly on land that can't be used for anything else. This really set the stage for a group of people, a group of natives, which is a story we've heard a hundred times over, having their land kind of encroached upon them and being pushed into smaller and smaller territories until they begin to fight back. And just the like the Navi and being Avatar. Well, <laughs> what I was going to say, I, and Fern Gully, which is really just what they based Avatar <laughs> on. So, yeah. yeah. But before Fern Gully, we never really heard that story much, though. <laughs> nope, never. Not once. <laughs> but it was this group that was suddenly forced to kind of push back a little bit. And the way they pushed back because they were immortal was to both disappear people into the Fey land or more commonly to cause mischief, as Nick mentioned earlier. Uh, They would cause machinery to stop working. They would do the equivalent of, like, blasting crops and hurting farm animals. Put those crops on blast. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they basically wreaked general havoc. Well, and I think what, what I found really interesting in the history of Ireland is in their sort of mythic stories that are partially historical partially partially mythical so there's some fact that people did come there from other continents and then there's the other side of it which is how they sort of told the story i i read about the uh tuatha de Danann, which were like the native pagans mm-hmm. uh who lived who lived on ireland before any other europeans came and then the milesians which were gauls who were living in spain at the time so not Spanish that we think of them today, but the Gauls who were spread out from France and the Iberian Peninsula, the Milesians came and they were sort of what became the white Christian men that live on Ireland now. And it's said that they had this big epic war and that the the treaty at the end of the war was that the men would live above and these Tuatha de Danann would live below. And in the, the mythology of it, those are the fair folk, the people that were sort of forced underground. So there's this sense of, and, and Dave, maybe you can speak to this since you were just there in Ireland, but a lot from what I read was that there's this sense of sort of paying homage to the true natives of Ireland, which is, again, it's like you said, it's Ferngully, it's the story of the Native American in our country, this idea of like, well... We came and we conquered, but we feel pretty guilty about it. So we're going to leave out dishes of milk for you every now and then so you don't get upset with us and, like, spoil our, cl- our crops. 
Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely more prevalent over there. And you can see that the land, it seemed like at a certain point, development slowed almost to a crawl. It was right. like the Industrial Re Revolution didn't happen. Now, that can be for a number of reasons, whether it is uh, the potato famine and basically all the Irish came here for the Industrial Revolution. But things seem to be held a lot more sacred over there. A lot of things are less disturbed. Things are left to crumble instead of just being torn mm. down. Uh, you definitely get the, the sense of tradition over there. Um, and more than likely, it's very ingrained in their culture that since there was this giant purging of the natural land, that now they're kind of doing their best to make up for it. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it is reflected in their mythology because the more I looked into the Irish Fae, the more offshoots there were and things that they still value to this day, whereas we have a lot of our own folklore and mythology in the U.S., even though we're a young country. I don't think it's at the forefront, whereas they have all these nuances so that it's not just fairies. There are changelings, there are banshees, there are mermaids, kelpies. Uh, there's even the, the legend of Jack-O-Lantern, which is where we get the term from, of a, a man who uh, named Stingy Jack who made a deal with the devil and and is doomed to roam earth without ever going to heaven and hell. And he carries a jack-o'-lantern made out of a, I think a turnip. So they have all these things and they all seem to reflect this, this world that they live on. That's lush and green and it's not cities. It's like anywhere, whether it's a bog or a marsh or wherever you go, there's like a different character that gets assigned to those things, which is really cool. Cause I don't know if we ever were able to give ourselves time to build up that kind of thing in the U S before the industrial revolution hit. Um, well, what were you saying uh, makes a lot of sense. You know, Ireland and Scandinavia and all these European countries and pretty much every country besides America has this long culture that we don't. You know, America is still a very young country and we do have different folklore and myths in America, but they're all really easily disproven stuff. So Ireland as a nation grew up with the idea of the, the fae folk being a part of life. And they had this, this spiritualism built into their national identity that America does not have. Yeah, I think that national identity, like you said, is a really big thing because people like uh, William Yates, when they were really pushing for an Irish identity, they latched onto things like the fairies, not necessarily because they believed in it, but because if they upheld that, it was a way to distinguish themselves from the Brits and say, like, we have our own ways that are deep and meaningful to us. Even though there are things that reflected in, in places like Wales and England, the, the Irish aesthetic of what the fairies were is so unique that to this day, it's something they're very proud of. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a pretty cool tradition to kind of hold on to. Um, you know, the, the fairy lore is really fascinating. Um, one of the things you were saying earlier is the idea of fairies being really, like, fickle. And the, the way they kind of operate is they, they're like toddlers, you know, they're not, for the most part, they're not malicious, but they don't really have a good sense of self and their effects on people around them and have literally no control over their tempers. 
And for the Celtic fairies, there's two denominations, according to the mythology. There's the Seelie court, which is supposed to be the, the good fairies. And Seelie is actually the, the root word for silly. So it's supposed to be the silly fun fairies who will do, <laughs> you know, they'll help around the house and they'll give you stuff and they'll be pals. And then there's the unseelie court, which I feel is like the bluntest way to put it. It's like there's the yeah. good guys and the ungood guys. <laughs> the good guys and the unsilly yeah. guys. And the unsilly. <laughs> that would be a really fun thing to call like a Marvel yeah. villain. The ungood guy. And the unsilly court were just straight up evil. They were the bad fairies. And even the good fairies could be pains in the ass. The The unsilly fairies were just monsters. Yeah, you didn't have to insult the unsealy for them to just attack you. They apparently just roved the roads at night, uh, just beating up travelers and forcing them to do things against Mm -hmm. their will. And were those bad fairies the ones that are most blamed for things like changelings? Yes, Yes. which is a fucking fascinating concept. Yeah, let's, let's talk about changelings for a second. So the idea of a changeling is that a fairy... Uh, or elf, depending on who you ask, would basically steal your child and replace it with one of their own. Now, the child would look exactly like yours, except it would suddenly become fussy, and it it would become a difficult baby. It it falls right in line with the casual cruelty uh, of the fey folk. Now, they would also do this to adults, too, they would abduct a perfectly happy normal adult and replace it with a changeling to the point where when somebody would suddenly become depressed or anxious or listful, suddenly they were accused of being a changeling. The reason this isn't, you know, some lighthearted thing of like, oh, haha, like, I guess you got swapped with a changeling. <laughs> it wasn't terribly uncommon for uh, mothers or fathers to kill their child right. once they believe that their child has been switched with a changeling. And there are cases of this, not specifically referencing fairies, going all the way up to, I think, what, 2012? Oh my um, God. The idea, and the, you know, this has happened in America multiple times. The most recent case, I believe, was brought up by Aaron Mankey of uh, the Lore Podcast. Yeah. A man was I've never listened to that with podcast. his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> What's that about? Oh, exactly this, but written better. <laughs> <laughs> but written, period. <laughs> a man was hiking with his girlfriend when suddenly he got the idea in his head that she had been replaced and she was an imposter. And his answer to this was to basically strangle her to death. Yeah. Um, this specific mental illness has gone back thousands of years. And until we discover that it was an illness... It was blamed on fairies and more specifically the changelings. Yeah, and it's scary because, like you said, sometimes the parents would kill the child. But what's almost worse or less merciful in a way is that, and tragic for the parents, is that they would think, well, we want our baby back. We don't want to just kill this thing because maybe then we'll never get our kid back. So sometimes they would just leave their kids on a mound that would be some somewhere that they would point to as a fairy mound or by a tree somewhere in nature and say well if we leave the fairy here the changeling then our child will be returned to us so it was with this heartfelt notion of like oh no we're not 
we're, this fairy's gonna be fine. It's in its natural habitat out here in the woods, even though it's actually like a six month old baby that just has colic or is just being fussy because it's a baby. So it's really yeah. tragic for the parents too, but that this was a cultural thing because you didn't just have to be a crazy person to kill your kid. You could be a very, what you think is a good parent, just literally leaving your child out in the woods to die in the cold. Yeah, well, and another example of something really commonplace now leading to really fucked up stuff back in the day is a lot of babies that were killed for the belief that they were changeling had really simple, well, not simple, but explainable birth defects. Like children that Mm. we would now consider autistic would, in ancient Ireland, potentially be killed because you have this baby, and as the baby's starting to grow up, it's not functioning like a normal baby Mm. you know even something like down syndrome where at first the baby seems relatively normal but as it gets older it doesn't look like what you would perceive to be normal so the parents would think well shit it was switched out by a fairy now i have a changeling instead of it actually being their child just with birth defects or you know neurological disorders right and and like dave touched on it's with adults it would be this sort of the same thing if you had an adult who had a mental breakdown, whether it was stress or it was something, the things that, that today we would not that aren't very important and need to be treated, but they can be treated. So we don't lose our minds over them. Those kind of things would make people turn on each other in really violent ways because in their mind, they're furious with this person because it's, it's a changeling. It's not them. So they would burn them with hot pokers. They would do all kinds of really brutal things to them to try to get them out of it. And as we know from centuries of really bad institutionalization, even in America, when it comes to people with mental handicaps, the more you torture someone, the, you're only exacerbating the problem. So all of these people who could really use some psychiatric help or some kind of help like that are just being brutalized by their closest family members for centuries. Yeah, and one of the old folklores is that uh, one of the weaknesses that fairies and other magical creatures had was iron because iron was supposed to represent this like milestone in human technology and scientific developments. And it was supposed to be, you know, iron worked on fairies the same way that like a crucifix would work on a vampire. You know, they can't touch mm. it. So what that would lead to is children beating their infant children with iron rods. Oh, this is brutal. Yeah. So it's it's interesting you brought up the iron thing because that is a that comes across in a lot of different groups both in Ireland and in other parts of the United Kingdom. But one group that I found interesting that I think is important to touch on in our podcast cuz it's genuinely terrifying. Do you guys know about either powries or more popularly known as redcaps? Um very little. Okay. So Red caps are more of, they're a little bit in Irish thing, but more English and Scottish. They're dwarfish, so they're very small. Um, they're not cherub-like or child-like as some fairies are. They're more depicted almost like what we see as gnomes now with very like old haggard faces and beards. And they wore these red caps. They lived in ruins and on crossroads, so at the border edges of town. So just another one of those things that show how dangerous it is to travel from town to town because that's where there would be red cap attacks the reason they call them red caps is what they would do is if a trespasser came into their castle ruins much like dave and his his new wife did when they went to stay at a a beautiful castle in ireland 
thankfully, you guys weren't met by a red cap because what they would do is they would either savagely beat you or they would cut you with either their sharp nails or some kind of tool, whether it's a blade or a, a sharp hammer or something like that. And they would brutally kill you and drain all your blood and then dye their caps in it because the whole thing with their red caps was that they not only needed them to be red, but they needed them to be constantly moist with human blood. So they're not just wearing red hats. They're wearing red hats that are constantly just dripping blood down their faces. And it's not said exactly why. It's just sort of their curse in life that they have to have perpetually bloody red caps. They just had OCD, (laughs) but like the worst kind. Right. But, (laughs) But what made me think of them was you had talked about the iron, and they're actually an outlier where iron was something that they wore. They wore ironclad shoes. And if anyone listening is familiar with the Hellboy story uh, or comic series, there's a story called Iron Shoes where he's attacked by a little hobgobliny looking man who wears iron shoes. And he's actually, Mike Mignola based him off of these red caps, which are, are one of the only ones on the list that I found that are truly 100% bad all the time. They are bloodthirsty monsters they just look like fairies, but they don't actually behave in a way. Like, you can't appease them. You can't leave out food for a red cap and keep them from killing you. Your only best bet is to just avoid crossroads, avoid lonely, desolate ruins and places like that. Some of the avoidance measures I found really interesting. Like, some of the protection charms you could carry. I mean, iron was one of them. Another, you know, jumping back to one of our older episodes, was a four-leaf clover was supposed to ward off uh, fairies, specifically fairies uh, committing mischief against you. It's interesting how that became just a four-leaf clover is lucky. You know, carrying one will bring you good luck. Hmm. Where, I have a four-leaf clover. Way I back when. You guys that. Yeah, I know, but it's good because now you won't get attacked. By <laughs> yeah, <fairies>. I have <laughs> it's, uh, an aunt of mine who's just done a lot of traveling. Gave it to me as a present like forever ago, and it's like laminated. I keep it in my wallet. I'll have to show it next time I see you guys. That's pretty cool. To be fair, though, I normally do not get attacked by fairies. So, well, it's probably because of well, the it's definitely yeah. because of the clover. Um, you know, it's just interesting that what was a protection against evil just became an overall good luck charm. Right. The other thing, you know, as I mentioned earlier, trees were a very big deal to the Fae. Specifically, the the thorn tree was supposed to be one of the places that they lived. So to hurt a thorn tree in any way was to immediately invoke the wrath of a fairy where when you dig a little bit you see that the thorn trees were actually hugely Mm. beneficial um it was basically a medicine tree almost everything on it could be used to treat some kind of ailment so you can see this lore being built around practicality where it was like you can't cut that tree down to tell a bunch of sorry to say it dumb villagers you can't cut that tree down because we need it to heal you it's a lot easier to say don't cut that tree down because it's magical yeah yeah it's kind of like if uh if civilization broke down right now and there was a a group of doctors just sitting on the last stock of medicine that we had (laughs) and just how quickly they'd probably have to convince everyone that it was that it was like blessed by god or something just to keep people from fucking with it 
it's idiocracy where it's like he finally just gave up and told everyone that he could talk to plants <laughs> and they were <laughs> I really want to go back in history and meet all of the people that cause these things. Like the one smart guy, the guy who's uh, about a century too smart for his neighbors, and he's just like, ah, oh, Jesus, I got to make up some total bullshit right now, don't I? <laughs> I found the same kind of thing with characters like brownies, which are sort of Scottish and English versions of... They're they're hobgoblins, but they're kind of like the leprechaun. They were mostly very benevolent, but uh, what I think is funny is they reflect sort of this need for parents who work on farms to tell their kids, like, hard work is important. So the brownies were said to continue your work overnight. Now... I don't know how that works, how you wake up, see that no more work has been done, but you believe that the brownies have been working in your fields all night. <laughs> but the idea would be that you would leave treats for them and that they would be good. If you didn't, or if you offended them in some way, a brownie would turn into a bogger, which would be like a horrible little snarling hobgoblin that would get into things and wreck and wreak havoc and just... Or sometimes they would just leave your house, which would be said to be worse. You'd rather have like a temper tantrum from your bogger and then have them go back to being a nice brownie, then have them just leave because you've you've lost, kind of like with that tree, you've lost the thing that's the source of your, in this it's more metaphorical, it's the source of their hard work. It's like what allows them to be a hardworking people is knowing that their brownies have their back in a way. And I think what was interesting about them too, we talked on our witch podcast about the King James book, Demonology, and brownies are actually in there. So this is a Christian yeah. guy, again, hearing about something local and saying, oh, brownies, those are probably real because demons are real. So he Stands gives them a reason. I like that the logic. As like, yeah. Well, actually, the Christian uh, telling of the fey folk is incredibly interesting because they, of course, weaved it into their belief system their explanation of the fairies were that they are fallen angels, but not quite. It was during the rebellion uh, in heaven where Lucifer fell, where all the angels that stayed in heaven continued to be angels. The ones that fell all the way down to hell, that were cast down to hell, uh, became demons. Everyone that was stuck in between in our world was supposed to have become a fairy, so they're fallen angels. They still are supposed to have uh, traces of archaic power. They're immortal, yet they're not quite angels and they're not right. quite demons, which ex- explains their kind of benevolent benevolent behavior. Benevolent. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Be a goddamn professional, Dave. <laughs> There's some well, words I just can't that, say. That is a really <laughs> cool idea, though, because they're basically like divine refugees. They're like the uh, they're like the aliens in District Nine, where they're like, "Look, we didn't come here for any reason, but we're fucking here now. So we're, oh, yeah. we're just gonna eat and we're gonna do our thing and like, don't just stay out of our yeah." Head. I've never I've never heard that before. Oh, yeah. That's that's kind of neat, though. Oh yeah, and you want to talk about witchcraft for a second? There were actually, as we discussed in the witchcraft episode. There was an insane witch hunt that went on for hundreds of years all across Europe. In Sicily, however, what cropped up in several places... Was fascism. Was, yes, fascism, but also (laughs) fairies. Uh, See, in Italy, it was a little bit more lenient. If you actually were found, quote-unquote, found to be a witch, you were not killed and tortured to death... 
you were either put in prison for a period or you were exiled from Italy altogether. And in several cases, inquisitors found they, they didn't know what to do because there were women describing encounters with the fae and going into the fae realm that sounded a lot to them like the covenants of witchcraft Mm. but demons and satan had nothing to do with it in several famous cases they asked very leading questions uh basically trying to get the women to admit that you know this was a false king right and henceforth satan but every single account was like no there was a fairy king and a fairy queen but you know the fae realm was very different we basically all had sex and ate really good food and then i returned home right yeah Um, i don't know what the big freaking deal was (laughs) there was this really awesome period where a bunch of inquisitors were like we we don't know how to handle (laughs) uh uh, fairies (laughs) (laughs) that is pretty crazy yeah One thing that I think was a a through line with all of the fairies that I found interesting was not only are they magical in the sense that they're different kinds of beings, but they, much like witchcraft, can use certain different things. So there's this idea of like putting a glamour on someone, um, which, which also gets incorporated into vampire stories sometimes. With the fairy, it's really, it's really big and it's about using illusions. So there are even stories about fairies perhaps not being nearly as enchanting or as powerful as they are, but they can create this sense that they are. So that if they're ugly little people and they're just sort of afraid because you're stumbling into their territory, they can make it look like you're in this beautiful elvish kingdom that is just lavish with food and all of these incredible things. So they have even the really small sort of like household brownie type fairies have these over the top powers, which I think ties back really nicely to that idea of like, well, what if they're just angels who are just thinking about this is the best way that I can survive, which is cool. Cause they put the idea in my head. Like what if that, that idea that if they're refugee angels, they're just creating an illusion of what actual heaven looks like. Like it's there. Yeah. They're really just out in the woods, but they remember what heaven looks like so they can make you see it. Like that would be such a cool way to, to think about fairies. I well, think, shit. Now we're going to have to talk to a fairy. We're going to have to get a fairy on the podcast <laughs> and, you know, do some investigative journalism. And you'd have to imagine they would be somewhat pissed off with man because it was this imperfect creature that God created that, you know, he valued more highly than them. And so it would make sense that he would, that, that the fairies, the fallen angels, would basically play pranks on, like, daddy's teacher's pets right you know what i mean mm-hmm. right they're like, like they just make it difficult for them <laughs> yeah like they're the the really smart kid but gets bad grades because they never show up like they're just the punk mm-hmm. kid who's like i'm above all this shit and they just hate <laughs> all of the nerds in school <laughs> yeah they're kind of like that so i want to talk a bit about the real effects that belief in fairies or mass belief in fairies has had on society in very big ways. So Dave, I know you also read a lot about the fairy investigation society, which is fascinating to me because they, it was less than a hundred years ago that this was all put together. Yeah. So it was founded in 1927 in Britain by a captain, Sir Quentin C.A. Grafford. 
I think it's just Crawford. Fancy as fuck. No, no, no. Crawford. Sir Quentin C. A. Butt. (laughs) And it kind of, you know, it didn't get much traction at first. It started during World War One, and it was specifically. You think they'd have more important things to do during World War One than look for fairies? Most people did. Quentin did not. (laughs) Everyone was making an effort in their own way, and. They, this society started strictly to monitor and document sightings of fairies. Now, it it kind of got off to a slow start. It really was kind of a false start. But it picked up again right around World War II. Because for some reason, everyone became obsessed with fairies during the war. Probably because war sucks and fairies are okay. <laughs> My guess is yes. What you know, whether it was a type of escape or because you have to imagine there were so many errors and so many shocking things happening that people were probably seeing things. There was equipment breaking, and it didn't take that many dots to connect the fairy folklore. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Like any during, pick a war, and you can find stories about sightings of ghosts or aliens or angels and shit right. like that war co- angels on the battlefield right exactly yeah. war causes people to see oh, weird yeah. shit you know there were a number of members during the world war ii era but the one that jumped out to me most was walt disney bullshit no not bullshit yep. at all <laughs> he was a he was a member even the, and he was an american member of this british group so that just yeah. goes to show how badly he wanted to be in on on the ferry action God damn yeah which would mean something totally different i guess if he if he went to like a a closed club somewhere and said i'd like to get in on the ferry action please <laughs> probably have a very different connotation it's like the kramer seinfeld like <laughs> wanting to get in with the bathroom crew yeah. <laughs> yeah but but disney disney was all about this shit he like dave went to ireland only to look for fairies not to go mm-hmm. on his honeymoon yeah no, he, he was absolutely obsessed with the idea of fairies. And, you know, this was not something that was just like the fringe uh, society. It, you know, there were a lot of, you know, I won't say high ranking, but ranking members of the military were in this society, uh, you know, that took their time out of fighting the Nazis to document fairy sightings and to investigate on their off time, which I just found fascinating right and they treated it a lot the way that someone would if they were in like a birding society it's it's a small group but just the most dedicated people and they treated it like naturalists they would record different types of fairies different places that you could see them ways that you could see them and this really kind of uh became became the first time that we see fairies as all benevolent creatures and maybe that was because of the war that more people wanted to think of them as sprightly little nymphs with gossamer wings that would grant wishes because i think life was so ugly between two major world wars that the idea of the fairy as the trickster started the shift and then with walt disney being part of that and taking his idea of a fairy and actually monetizing it and things like peter pan it just changed the entire worldview of everyone on fairies from what they were to what they are now. Now, were these guys uh, legit? Did they believe in it? Or were they just a bunch of rich smartasses? Because I got to tell you, what this is making me think of is when we talked about the 13 Club in the, the uh, Bad Omens episode. Yeah. So this 
it seems at least that this is very different, that these are believers. Yeah. And, and I have one in particular story about one particularly well-respected man that I think <laughs> drives home just how capable they were of believing this full, wholeheartedly. So in 1917, there was something called the Cottingley Fairies Incident. Basically, two girls, Frances Griffin and her, and, uh, her cousin, yeah, her cousin Elsie Wright, went to Frances' dad and said, can we use your camera and, and take photos of the fairies in the garden? So this guy, being a perfectly normal human being, said, oh, that's adorable, and he gave them the camera, and they went out into the garden. So they come back with these black and white photos. Again, it's 1917, so they had to you know, expose them for a while, and then when the photos were ready... What it looks like is that these two little girls had multiple photos of, of fairies dancing around them. Now, take a moment, <laughs> go to Google, look no, up I, Cottingly Fairy incident. I know, I, I've seen the pictures, I know exactly. Yes, okay. It's, so what you, it's your mental want, picture of a fairy is what, what this, this is. We, we don't want to shit too heavily <laughs> on the people of the past. Oh no, this is like super fake. Um, but, but these are obviously cut out drawings like, of fairies. Yeah, it is the like and people were convinced of this up until the the until 1988. Yeah, that's like, when that's had, when the the one of the the women who was an old lady by that time finally was like, "Oh yeah, we made all that shit." Well, up. I remember but, a yeah. movie came out about it in like the 90s. And, I kind of do yeah. too. We'll have to look and see what that was because I kind of. And do it wasn't too. about well, like how these little girls were full of shit. It was one of those like, "Do you believe in magic?" Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you shouldn't. Um, so what was interesting about this was they come to the with the photos to the dad and they show the dad, and he says, "Oh, that's adorable. Go back out and play." Dad doesn't buy it at any point in his life. They go to the mom, and this is where the timing works out perfectly, because at the same time, this was the first, this was the, sort of the early budding of people like Aleister Crowley. The spiritualist mu- movement was becoming very in vogue, especially with people who fancied themselves part of high society. So the mom is like, oh my god, it's proof, I have to show all of my spiritualist friends these, these photos. So whether or not the mom really believed it, she was the one that started spreading it around. So much so that it got into papers, really reputable papers at the time. And people started challenging them and saying, much like the, uh, the Fox sisters who were sort of the, the spiritualists in America, people were like, oh yeah, prove it. So what they would do is they'd go back out into the garden, not with anyone watching them, just two <laughs> little girls and a camera. And they'd get more illustrations of dwarves and fairies, and they'd sit them down in front of it, in front of them, take pictures, and then they'd be in the papers the next week. And people would like, see it's it's all true. Of the most influential people who bought this, the the most amazing one is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, right creator of Sherlock Holmes. He believed this shit to his dying day. There was he did not waver one bit. He fought tooth and nail for it, like probably lost friends and some of his standing society to push that fairies were real and that specifically these photos. And again, if you're listening, look at the photos. The guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes thought that those were real fairies. (laughs) So I'm looking up the, the movie is called Fairy Tale, a true story. And it came out in 1997. Now, Peter O'Toole played arthur conan doyle in it and right. there is an actor who has an uncredited cameo appearance of as the father of francis griffiths 
And that man was Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a great, that was a great setup. <laughs> but kind of like Dave said, it wasn't until the 80s that one of the women uh, admitted it, but they weren't even really challenged until the 70s. I guess just because people, it's a harmless thing to believe, so why debunk it? But yeah. it wasn't until the 70s that a guy actually found an old book, an illustrated children's book, and said, look at these pictures. These are the same pictures. And that was the first time people were like, no, okay, yeah, they're not real. Yeah, but I want to know what, like, Carson, who is, like, a famous debunker, and, like, Houdini said right. about this. Like, we, we have to look into this a little bit further because, like, uh, you, you know, Conan Doyle, I, I kind of... It's a bummer, but I get it. <laughs> um, but, like, I, I don't get... There was a very popular period in America where spiritualists were all the rage. And just, like, in any case, a, a, a very outspoken breed of skeptics and debunkers also came forward. And I just don't get how this... Like, I'm just imagining the, the girl in her 80s being like, what? Oh, God, people are this people still a conversation? Still it's still <laughs> Yeah, it kind of it kind of reminds me of like any episode of any sitcom ever where someone tells a lie and then they just have to keep it up because they're too embarrassed to stop. <laughs> like, I know yeah. there's there's an episode of uh, South Park where the guys who work at SeaWorld convince the boys that this, that the whale can talk be, by using the loudspeaker. <laughs> And they just keep digging themselves in deeper because they don't want to admit it. Because they were like, it'll be funny again. And it just ends up being a goddamn nightmare. People die. <laughs> and I could just see these women's their li entire lives being like that. Every time someone asks them about it, they're like, oh, Jesus. We have to go take more pictures of fairies, don't we? <laughs> in our 40s. <laughs> yeah, so that one really blew my mind. Another one that I want to talk about that was way more recent. Uh, 2013, yeah. in fact is about the Iceland Holdafolk, which means hidden people. Say so, Holdafolk like an Icelandic person. <laughs> yeah. Holdafolk. Like, because who, who's, at, who, who's actually seen an Icelandic person? They might as well be hidden people. <laughs> um, so in Iceland, they were planning a, the construction of a roadway through the Galgaran lava field, which already can we just appreciate how awesome it is that they can just drive through a lava field on their way to work no that sounds cool so but you know if there was a lava field just in the middle of the jersey turnpike that would be a huge pain in the ass right <laughs> yeah it really, it really would. would be and uh, like, jesus and thanks chris christie <laughs> <laughs> they basically wanted to build a, a freeway that would go through this lava field now this is where the thing gets really interesting because there was a group of environmentalists that were protesting against this partly or likely mostly just to preserve the natural area but they use the very specific tool that has proven to be very effective on people of norse descent and that was they told everybody you can't build there because it's on top of a very important fairy church <laughs> so what they did was they brought in people who claimed to be seers and that means people who actually say that they can see and even converse with fairies while others can't. And they said them, 
they put them to the spot and they said, oh yeah, right here, you're planning to, to go past this, this big group of rocks here. All these rocks, that's a fairy church. This is where they gather. This is where they go. And it really worked, at least in halting construction, because it, yeah. it became a national debate, basically. You, you, you know, you're probably, if you're American, you're probably having a good long laugh about this. Uh, you have to understand, 54% of this country believe in the hidden folk. Right. Like, that is a huge percentage. It's it's like how we are with ghosts. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, exactly. that's another we, thing we is that, the, yeah. like, one of the things about it is that, like, the, the production of the road was, like, really troubled. And they had machines didn't work and things were disappearing and, like, people were getting hurt. So it almost sounds like, you know, it would if it was America, we would say that it was haunted or cursed or something. But because it was in, you know, the heart of you know, the Northlands, it was, well, the, the elves are fucking with your shit because don't, don't, yeah, and that's a don't very, bulldoze that, their rocks, you dick. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very common occurrence where whenever a tractor breaks down or something like that, people get uneasy because they say, like, look, I was just moving some dirt and clearly somebody doesn't want me to do that. So much so that the Atlantic Road and Coastal Administration has a standard written response for whenever fairyland is intruded upon <laughs> so they actually have a five-page document that is written specifically to release to the public whenever they have to say look we know this is fairyland we're going to halt construction for a while to allow give the fairies the allotted time they need to to relocate basically it's basically imminent domain for magical people what ultimately happened with this project and a lot of projects is the seers went in and negotiated with the elves. So I don't know what goes into that. If the seer just comes into the office one day and says, Hey, I talked it over with them and everything's <laughs> like cool. a union rep, <laughs> but they, they kind of are their union reps because often what they'll do is they'll say, okay, they made demands and they said, if you, if you leave this rock here and make sure that, it never gets disturbed as a, as a sign of peacefulness to us, then we won't mess with any of your construction. And for that reason, there are some really cool sites in parts of Iceland where there's just random giant boulders in like the middle of a road that the road goes around or houses build like against something. And it's because, well, that's a fairy rock. You can't disturb it. Otherwise, bad things will happen to you. And, you know, it sounds kind of ridiculous hearing it. And, uh, well, I mean, yeah, it is. You shouldn't halt production on the highway because you're going to piss off the elves. But at the same time, it goes back to what we were talking about. It's, you know, we, we as Americans, we can think that's ridiculous and nothing like that would ever happen in America. I mean, shit, they just built freaking pipelines on not even land that was sacred to Native Americans, but like, you know, where they lived. So yeah, actual home yeah. to real people that we can talk exactly. to. Exactly. And that's yeah, but um, America doesn't really have any sense of spirituality. We don't have tell you we have some though because if you were buying a home <laughs> and were yeah. told that they had to remove the headstones of a graveyard to build the home, you <clears throat> even if you're very logical, <laughs> I mean us personally would be like fuck yeah. But more than likely, most people would be really uneasy about that. You know, oh, yeah. it's you know just, what? Here's the it's, thing. It's what we I believe agree in. with you. I think people would be uneasy about that. But I don't think I think that would be more of a personal thing. People would be uneasy about that because they wouldn't want to be near dead bodies. They I don't think 
the average person would be uneasy about it because they don't want to disturb hollowed ground or disturb the souls of the dead. Well, and I think the other interesting thing to keep in mind with this, with these Icelandic cases is 54% of people say they believe in it. Now, I wonder how much of that number are people that believe it in the cultural sense, in the way that adults say they believe in Santa Claus. Like, I don't believe a real guy is there, but the magic of it is real enough to affect our lives. Mostly I bring that up because the environmentalists who are pushing to sort of preserve this lava field and keep the construction from happening, from what I read, it didn't seem like they were all super on board with we have to do it because of fairies. They were trying to preserve land. So I think they just knew their culture well enough to use it as a tool, similar to how Leslie Nope convinced everyone in Pawnee that there was cursed (laughs) Indian relics in the site of the park because that's kind of it seems like that's kind of what they did at least some of the environmentalists I think were smart enough to say look if we just tell people uh, it's about biodiversity it's not about messing with the elk habitat or whatever all that stuff that normally people say yeah who cares money 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 I want to build they knew that this would work because it would get the public riled up so I like that it's it's potentially this Icelandic thing where it's like with a wink and a nod, like, oh, you can't build there. There's fairies, you know, with, with like this knowing look, like everyone knows it's really something else, but they just it's just more civil, I guess, to talk about it in terms of we can't disturb the fairies. Yeah, no, I like that. All right. So I got something I want to talk about. Fairies and aliens. <laughs> I do want to talk about that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious to see where you're going with this. So, in a nutshell, the too-long-didn't-read version, stories about fairies in the old days align very similar with stories about aliens and alien abduction from the 20th century and early 21st century. Let's think about fairies. The way they operate. They're these hidden creatures that exist on a plane just slightly off of our own they can come into humans lives they can meddle uh they take people sometimes they leave somebody else who's changed who's different because it's not the person it's a facsimile of the person am i talking about fairies am i talking about aliens you're talking about fairy aliens hell yeah no the (laughs) stories are very similar and i guess we we've talked when we talked about when we did the alien episodes, one of the things that we brought up is how aliens are sort of the, the modern day equivalent of, you know, mythological creatures that we have. They can exist as the, the ghost or the angels or the, the gods, the unseen force. And like I said, a lot of the ways that they operate, a lot of the stories are very in line with how fairies would work. Yeah, I think it, it's exactly, you're right, it's like we touched on that Alien episode, it's like pre-industrial revolution, pre-space race, we only had the natural world to look at, mm-hmm. so it's like, oh, well that tree, I bet, at night turns into a man who comes and takes you from your room, and then once we started building rockets, it became all about flying saucers, but they are in a lot of ways essentially the same thing, which I think begs the question, if we skip ahead to a time where we make contact with intelligent extraterrestrials, however long from now that might be. What becomes our, what fills that void? Because it would have to be something that both the aliens and us fear. So it's, I think it'll be something though, because 
We see this on every continent. We see aliens on every continent now as far as what people believe in. So this is a this idea of hidden people or the fair folk or the good neighbors as they've sometimes been called. Uh, it's never going away whether it's aliens or fairies. So what could it possibly be next? And and I wish we could live long enough to find out well, what that is. Well, yeah, it'll always be something because what it comes down to is that fairies and stories of alien abduction both aren't real. So it will always have something. There'll always be that boogeyman that represents the unknown for us. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, you know, going against the grain here by saying that fairies aren't real, but I feel like we're all on the same page with that. Well, no, what I like is when you said that, my initial thought was that if fairies existed, that would be considered a slight against them, and they will now come after you, because that's how fairies work. And it's very much, you can tie very easily the concept of hell, like Judeo-Christian hell, where it seems like there's always a situation where you can step out of line and by disrespecting something there's consequences to it with the fairies it's if you disrespect them in some way they'll come after you with hell it's like disrespecting god uh or the holy virgin is or the holy dog who grants wishes (laughs) yeah (laughs) callback is um it, it seems like there's always consequences to action it's kind of like you have to respect these things at this time or you're fucked right and it seems like there's always been that in every little bit of folklore uh throughout the ages well that's the thing is that we like our 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 monsters and our myths to have defined rules so with the fairies you know you can't slight them you don't want to mess with their holy places you want to leave gifts out for them um like you said about hell you don't want to you need to follow god's rules god's wishes or you'll go to hell um even stuff like a lot of like old european myths about the vampire are really weird and specific like vampires can't cross over running water uh vampires if you throw a vampire sees seeds or if you throw a handful of seeds at a vampire they meticulously have to count them right they have to peck it up with their mouth like a hen no (laughs) that is not the myth (laughs) you dummy uh, but <laughs> just bend over at the waist, <laughs> just picking up like a drinky just, bird. But <laughs> all the fear goes away instantly. Well, I think like it's we we want to have we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to have our the world to have some kind of magic in it. We want these creatures to be out there and exist because it makes life more interesting and it means that there's something else out there beyond the physical, something else to this world that we can't quite un- undersee or perceive. But we also want to have rules to it, so that makes it safe. So when you leave your gifts for the fairies and you avoid their sacred spaces, that means that they can't hurt you. Now, we're safe here in America, but as a bit of a sign-off, I just want to acknowledge all of the new friends that Dave and Jenna made in Ireland that are now being tortured by fairies because (laughs) of all the blasphemous things we said on this (laughs) podcast. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Any other like overarching analysis of this uh, 
that that maybe we missed. I, I think I think we touched on something pretty big right there at the end. That that comparison with aliens, I think, draws really what they mean to us. Right. Yeah. Right. Really You're like welcome. <laughs> so you so smart. Okay, real quick, just because I feel like we always end it with this, but like favorite portrayals of al- um not aliens, <laughs> favorite portrayals of fairies in pop culture. <laughs> okay, I have mine, but I'll let Dave go first. Um, I think Gamil del Toro in the Hellboy series uh, did an amazing job with both fairies and elves. That's really what I picture, specifically in the Golden Army, the second. Uh, the second Hellboy movie, I thought he made the elves super sinister in a way that, you know, their land was being uh, taken from them and they were being pushed further and further underground, as well as the tooth fairies that were these, like, little malicious things that only wanted to really cause harm and trick people and take kids and feed their own purpose. Uh, I thought lined up really really nicely with a lot of the traditional oh yeah guillermo definitely gets like the the fairy mythology i mean parts not just in hellboy but particularly like pan's labyrinth that movie just like gets it to a t and something that i love which wasn't going to be my answer but i think is now is when guillermo did um don't be afraid of the dark which you know Mm, had limited success but the the monsters that were really cool and those were based on the works of this writer named um arthur Machen who was a huge mm. influence on Lovecraft, who we're all big fans of. And he wrote about, he called them the people under the hill or the white people. And a couple of his stories dealt with his take on fairies, which weren't that they were the the magical Disney fairies, but they were these horrible, pale monsters that lived underground and would abduct people and eat them. Oh, yeah. So... I'm glad that you brought up both those things because in in Mignola's comic series of Hellboy, there's great uses of fairies and in everything Guillermo does in film, for sure. Um, for mine, for me, there are two. My more lighthearted comical one would be The Labyrinth. Um, specifically, there's a fairy that bites Sarah in the beginning, which as a kid was really funny because I grew up in a Tinkerbell, post-Tinkerbell world and <laughs> watching Hoggle say... Uh, you know, what do you expect a fairy to do? Because after it bites Sarah, it's kind of like, oh, it's this is a different take on. And he's out there gassing them like they were bugs. Yeah, he's killing them like like vermin. And then also uh, Jareth in general. Now, granted, he's called the Goblin King, but everything about his character, his sort of androgyny, his his uh, magical abilities, hit stealing a baby. Those are all very much based in the Fae. And Brian Froud's artwork is based in the fairy realm a lot, too. God, I love his but art. My, Seeing it in motion yeah. terrifies me, but, like, his art books are incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but my big one would be throughout the Sandman ster- uh, series of Neil Gaiman, there are recurring characters like Cloracon, and they're all from the fae realm, and they're these very regal people, but because it's almost an intergalactic kind of magic, they're, we go on their planet from time to time, and they re- he really hits on like the true nature of fairies. They are snooty. They think they're better than us. They're sometimes beautiful. They're sometimes hideous to look at. And they're just sort of all of the fringes of our society put into one in this like noble race. And I always thought he did a really good job of making them feel 
like something more complex and nuanced than just magical people who are good or bad. They felt much more, much more like gods, I guess. In a my way. probably my single favorite issue of Sandman is the one where Morpheus invites Shakespeare to put on a Midsummer's Night's Dream. Oh yeah, for the fairies that his actors are playing. So Oberon and Titania and Puck. Um, right, Puck switches places with the actor yeah, at the end. Yeah, and, and Puck yeah, was, before I remembered um, Arthur Mock and stuff, Puck was going to be my answer. Um, because what, what's cool is that Puck is supposed to be a hobgoblin. And in A Midsummer's Night's Dream, the Shakespeare play, he's, he's referred to as Puck, and he also goes by the name Robin Goodfellow. But he's this mm-hmm. ancient British version of the the fairy they call him the hobgoblin we talk about hobgoblins but it's basically the same thing he's supposed to be like mischievous and goofy yeah so it's it's i think it's interesting that we all right off the top of our head had really great <clears throat> fairy examples that have nothing to do with sprightly little beings yeah because that's <laughs> that's what it comes down to fairies are fucking cool i mean they are cool fairies wear boots and you gotta believe me i tell you i tell you i <laughs> shit i don't remember it's god i, I saw it with my own two eyes I don't. I feel like an asshole. I don't remember the damn Black Sabbath song. <laughs> Fairies with boots right. and dancing with the dwarves. <laughs> and I went to All the right. doctor to see fun. what he could give me. So as Theo sings us out in the background, thank you for listening to the Age of Enfrightenment. <laughs> Dave is taking off his headphones right now. <laughs> He's getting louder. <laughs> He's actually follow us louder. on Facebook. Look up the Age of Enfrightenment. Find us on Twitter. Look up AOE underscore podcast. You can listen to us on our website, aoepod.com. Or most importantly, subscribe to us on iTunes. Look up The Age of Enfrightenment. You can subscribe. Have us in your feed every two weeks. And leave us a review. Leave us a review on how Theo just sang that whole song and how well it went for you. Thanks for listening. We're glad to have Dave back, even though we missed the soundboard. And we'll see you or we'll talk. See you in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Later, skater. <laughs> <laughs>